0: This is the Biblical Mind podcast, produced by the Center for Hebraic Thought. Honest five star reviews help others find this podcast. Visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org for articles and videos
1: that explore the deep structures of Scripture. In fact, I was just at a friend's house on uh, the other night and our conversation turned into a living room bar brawl um, where one person was arguing, you know, that to really be able to understand scripture, we have to understand um, the, the context and the, you know, the literary worlds that it emerged out of and the intertextual, you know, whatever, whatever's and um, other extra biblical books. And then the other person was arguing that, you know, what's in the text itself is basically all we need to be able to interpret it. And why do we need um, what, you know, it's, it's not only ancient Near Eastern scholars that would have, you know, would be able to interpret scripture well. And, um, yeah, so I feel like these are things that we're often wondering, um, you know, Mm -hmm. can I, how much do I have to know about the biblical world to actually be able to faithfully interpret scripture?
0: Yeah. And so where, where would you generally fall on those questions of like, how much do you actually have to know? Or have you changed your position on that? Have you, over time?
1: I, so I think I have changed my position over time. Um, Actually, the reason that I became interested in Hebraic thought, and it actually ended up here with you, Drew, so lucky you. Um, But it started for me about 10 years ago um, when I went to a group that was studying the Jewish roots of Christianity. And I thought at that time, like, I have to learn this stuff or I'll never be able to really understand my own faith. So I think for me... um, you know, at the get-go, I thought that this kind of background knowledge was extremely important and sort of the key to being able to unlock scripture. Um, But I guess more recently, I've began to consider more, um, you know, to what degree we can rely on these extra-biblical texts and you know, thinking about things like we all come from different church backgrounds, we interpret through a certain lens or a certain tradition, and um, how much do those traditions get to shape us as well, even just the Christian creed that's been passed down?
0: Hmm. Yeah. I think that Similarly, I've moved positions on this. So I I think like a lot of people, when you do any formal training in Bible and you hear all of this stuff and you're constantly, you know, professors coming in every day and kind of wowing you with something new you didn't know. um, I think that's when I first got interested and, and I almost went off in a rabbit hole of well, I can't know anything unless I know everything behind these texts and the cultural uh, backgrounds and what they ate and where they pooped and, you know, um, All very who, key. who was whistling Dixie where and when and why. And yeah. Um, and say, similarly, I think I've backed off a little bit and to see those as illuminating, but it, it can also be, I also wonder about people's motivation. Sometimes I wonder if and again, I don't think anybody's doing anything, me- you know, out of anger, but but that sometimes people are just trying to secure the right interpretation by saying, "Well, because it happened right. at this location in this Greco-Roman situation with this piece of poetry in their mind, they said this," and they're they're really trying to lock something in that maybe is a little bit more flexible than that.
1: Well, so let me ask you a question: Center for Hebraic Thought. Does everyone have to be, you know, a Hebrew scholar or a scholar of the um, ancient Near East to be able to get into the mind of the biblical authors and to understand the text?
0: Yeah. uh, So there's actually two different things in that question. Uh, It's an intimidating question to begin with. You said it with a a delightful smile on your face, but I'm like, you're trying to take my whole life down, right? (laughs) now. Right. You're coming after my whole life. Um, Yeah, I think first... I don't think the goal is to get inside the mind of the biblical authors, um, but to see what they're trying to show us. To, to get them over our shoulders, as it were. If we're gonna if we're gonna climb into something, we're gonna climb climb with them pointing at something, so that we can see what they're showing us. And then, uh, no, I don't think you have to know Hebrew. I think knowing just a tiny bit of Hebrew actually opens so many doors and, and understand what's going on in Scripture. But um, I like to give the illustration of one of my closest friends um, who has an eighth grade education from Brazil and spent many uh, years on the streets in Toronto as a drug addict and came to the United States, became a Christian, had a radical conversion, began to read, learned how to read Portuguese um, by reading the Bible. He reads the Bible over and over again. He reads it. He's the Psalm 1 man who like meditates on it. He's a stonemason and a contractor, but he is constantly turning over what he read uh, in the Torah and in all of Scripture, and thinking about how it fits together, and his level of understanding of biblical thinking is phenomenal. Um, as a guy again, again who still struggles with English, and his, his even his Portuguese is kind of you know rudimentary in some ways, but because he wrestles with it constantly and because he reads it right, he just knows what's in there. Um, so I, I I'd like to say the beauty of biblical thinking, the intellectual world of the Bible. Is that it is for everybody? It's for my friend Nielsen Nielsen da Silva. If you're listening, uh, he's an incredible guy. He's just a phenomenal um, brother in Christ. And then, um, and then it's for people like you and me that kind of try to dig in there and really go every step that we can, and always trying to develop our knowledge through peer intellectual traditions and academically. And look, I teach the Hebrew Bible every semester, and I read through it every semester, and I am always seen new things, um, and making new connections. And so I, I think it's, it's infinite in its ability to teach us and to reteach us. And, you know, the older I get in different life situations, I see new things I never noticed before. And so I'd like to think there's something about the text that does so much work, even in translation, it does so much work.
1: Right. But do you think there's ever things that we miss, you know, because we, we come to the text and maybe we're really struggling with something that seems strange or obscure and it doesn't fit in. And maybe it's something that if we had that little piece of background information, the, you know, maybe it's referring to um, something else outside of scripture. Maybe it's, yeah. you know, a concept that was everyone knew about in, you know, Second Temple Judaism, the time of Jesus, but we just don't. Um, do you ever think that there's times where There is a key like that, that um, would really elucidate scripture for
0: I have, I've got a perfect example for just that, actually. The one that I was saying, yeah. It's like I set you up for that. Um, Yeah, Genesis 15 is kind of my go-to example because I I actually, in in a THM seminar, tried to work this out through narrative criticism, which means I was applying the tools of literary narrative construction. To the text, and my question was, okay, so if you don't know Genesis 15, this is the one where God says, you know, hey Abram, he again, um, you know, Abram, he complains, you know, oh, this guy Eleazar of Damascus, he's going to inherit all my wealth, right, and he's going to take over my family business when I die, and God's like, no, 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 I'm your shield, I'm your great reward, he's not going to inherit it, it's somebody from your own body, and then Abram uh trust he trusts him and it was credited to him with righteousness for for righteousness whatever that means i leave that one a on big but even that little move like whatever that means like credited to him as righteousness this this phrase even in the Hebrew it's it it feels very much like a bank deposit or you know like it's the language there there's there could be a couple different metaphors that are being appealed to So that's one of those things where I just say, hey, look, I don't know exactly what that means. Let's read forward and see if the biblical authors keep using that metaphor or if they kind of leave it lay. And then you go into the next story where he says, he comes back at him again and says, "Um, I'm the one who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans, that's lower, a little south of Babylon. And he says, I'm going to give you this land to possess. And I love the answer. The response is not, and he trusted him and his credit to him as righteousness, but He asked him a question, how can I know that I will possess it? And then the answer is borders on epic, right? So how can I know that I'm to possess this? And God said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Now that's an answer to the question, how will I know, right? And of course, if you know a little bit about covenants, even things that look like covenants today, like marriage ceremonies are kind of covenant-like. They're not exactly covenants, but they're like covenants in some ways. Um, I mean, we still ask this question: like, what do you bring as a sign of your promises that you're making? And so, are you
1: saying you brought a heifer to your wedding? Too?
0: That now, when people say, "Well, I want my wedding to be biblical," I'm like, "All right, but we're going to have to start with living animals and end with dead ones, and we're going to have to pronounce some curses along the way." So we wow. we pronounce blessings only at weddings, but we don't actually go the full covenant and do the curses as well. Some people do. I've actually heard people that did like light cursing kind of like, you know, and if you mess around, uh, on this marriage, then, then let all these people here witness today that you've, you've sworn this on your own head. So, so, okay. So this is a weird ceremony. And then, uh, because a, the answer to the question, how shall I know that I'm going to possess his land is bring me a bunch of animals. And then the next sentence is, and Abram starts cutting these animals in half and makes a little sidewalk. It's like a Monty Python movie, like, you know, put a shrubbery in a, Half the animal over here, half the animal over there, right? And it's really unclear, even visually, what exactly is going on, except that the animal, and you're like, are the animals cut in half like lengthwise or in the middle or, you know, what's going on? Uh, And so I think a lot of, and so if you've ever heard this passage taught or preached on, I'm going to bet somebody has brought up the, and of course we know that there's a similar, covenant ceremony. And, and it's a Hittite covenant ceremony. It looks like a land grant where they cut the animals in pieces and they make a circle and the two parties enter the circle and they swear these things before their gods. And the implicit curse with these dead, torn apart animals is, let me be torn apart like these animals if I break this curse with you, right? And and so there, there's perfect example where we think the background information has done all the work, right um, right and, uh, and I would just say this. Well, A, hey, let me ask you, does all that make sense up to this point?
1: I think so. Although I have to say, I've never asked myself whether they were cut vertically or horizontally. <laughs> but maybe that's just me.
0: Well, the only reason I ask that is because I, I use images a lot in my class. And as I was looking, A, there are hardly any paintings or images of the scene, as you can imagine why and be the few they cut them differently and so and it makes you think okay how would you paint the scene right um right. which is always a good question to ask in a narrative uh, like how would i paint this how would i shoot it if it were a movie um, and so there there's some way in which i want to say look before we dug up these clay tablets that happen to have these treaties on them that only look like so if you look in the ancient near east there's only these treaties we found uh, in in the land of the Hittites are the only ones that look anything like this. Before that, everybody was scratch, scratching their head going, I don't know exactly what they're doing here. Um, maybe this is going on. Um, and so you could imagine that when they found those, everybody was excited and thought like, aha, this finally puts together a, a, a missing puzzle piece on exactly what was going on in Genesis 15. And I want to say, does it? Does it really? Like is... Does that actually do we need it? I think it's f- like infinitely fascinating that that was found and that Abram lived in the land of the Hittites. So even like culturally, this would have been a culturally appropriate covenant for him to have experienced uh, in in the Bronze Age, right? Um, but all you have to do is kind of read the story and just say like, I don't know what they're talking. about, Whatever that means, right? Bring me a turtle. Dove. Okay, whatever that means, he cuts him in half. Whatever that means, he he fights off the birds of prey. Okay. I have no idea why they're telling me any of this until you get to the next section. um, remembering the question is, how shall I know that I am to possess it? And as the sun was going down, I'm in verse 12 here. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on, or dread fell on Abram and behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then Yahweh said to Abram, knowingly you shall know that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that's not theirs and they will be slaves there and they'll be afflicted for 400 years, but I'll bring judgment. Okay. And they'll come out with great. And and he tells the story that ends in, they're going to come back to this land, right? So it's like, you're not going to see this. This is Hebrews 11 stuff. You're not going to see this promise fulfilled, but I'm telling you. So notice that God's words that go along, uh, go along with whatever this animal ritual is, is knowingly you shall know. How shall I know? Knowingly you shall know has something to do with the animals. So we're still kind of like, all right, there's a thread right. that is not pulling all this together. And again, as you keep on going down, I play this game in classroom. I'm like, cause some student, I'm like, what is this? And they're like, it's a covenant, you know, feeling proud. And I'm like, how do you know that? Um, <laughs> and then they look at you and go, I don't know. It just feels like a covenant. And, and then someone who's actually reading the text will then notice um, on verse 18, on that day, Yahweh made a covenant with Abram saying to your offspring, I give this land, right? So I would suggest to you that actually everything you need to know about what happens here is in the story itself. The only thing you don't know is this culturally conditioned, uh, I, 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 I compare it to like a mortgage uh, ritual, right? So when you sign a mortgage on a house. Like nobody had to tell me, you know, that I was gonna be signing my name a bunch of times. They, they they literally just put the papers down and they point to all the different spots on the page. And then after like three hundred signatures, you know that somehow you've mystically crossed over into home ownership. Um, and and it seems like something like that is going on. And then when we discovered these clay tablets, I think that was the aha moment where they're like, aha this must be something like this is what must've been in Abram's mind as God is saying these things. But if, if you back up and say, nobody ever told you, like, so imagine you were a Christian or a Jew for the last 2000 years before they found those clay tablets, what did you think was going on here, right? Like, could, couldn't you get all the same information? What was the point of the covenant? it was so that Abram would be confident that he would know confidently that God was going to do this thing for him. How does that work? I don't know. That's a different story. You know, right. I wrote a couple of books on that. You can, <laughs> if you're really bored or need to go to sleep at night, you can read those, but, um, Amazon.com. But, but what's interesting com- about it is the, the goal was not actually to make a, a land grant with him. It was that he would know, right. Which is actually not a stated reason for these covenants in general. Um, So does that make sense of, like, it's just a little piece of background information that you can imagine why people got excited about it, but you don't actually need it in order to understand what the biblical author is saying.
1: So whether or not you have, you know, the knowledge of ancient Near Eastern Hittite treaties, doesn't change the way we understand God's relationship to Abram or to, you know, us or whatever we're extrapolating from that text. And would you say that general rule of thumb applies across scripture and across all of these sort of contextual um, background pieces?
0: Well, I mean, I think you have to, to some extent, otherwise you end up saying really weird things um, like nobody really understood the Bible until the nineteen hundreds <laughs> <Right. laughs> until archaeology began in full, nobody really understood anything that was going on. and i I think we want to just be very careful that anybody who's read ancient Near Eastern text will instantly realize the difference between the biblical text, the biblical way of telling stories, the the inclusion and exclusion of certain details the terseness, the the brevity uh, um, of scripture, like it's doing something as pieces of literature. It's doing something very different than you see in the rest of the ancient Near East. Um, Even the way in which it tells stories, not radically different, but it's making very different strategic moves even in its literary format. Um, And so I think even the form that the text comes to us in is already selling us on the idea that the text is doing something within itself. Um, right. and if you were an ancient, I mean, just think about it. If you were a, a, a Hebrew in Jesus's day, you wouldn't have known any of this either. It's not like you would have known about Hebrew land grant treaties, right? Uh, or sorry, Hittite land grant treaties. Um, right. you would have been just as clueless so that you would have been thousands of years away from any of this information as well. Um, and so there's some way in which the text does what it needs to even in the time of the Israelites who would have been thousand, a, a thousand years away from these um, these cultural uh, icons and events uh, in, in their own day?
1: Right. So I think maybe if I can ask a slightly different question, then, you know, I think that example, Genesis 15, um, is, you know, engaging with, it's, it's a text where, you know, it, it's situated in this particular context with particular rituals. Um, which, you know, can or cannot fill in our background knowledge. But what about places where the text maybe specifically engages, maybe even quotes from um, other sources, extra biblical sources? So whether that's, you know, a Babylonian, you know, mythology, or, you know, even thinking about um, the way Paul quotes from, the Greek poets or references to, you know, the the apocryphal book of Enoch, apocryphal or not, depending right. on
0: where you stand on, this. Depending on which one of the seven traditions and inclusion or exclusion you have. Yeah.
1: Right. So in those cases, um, what do we make of the biblical text quoting or engaging with specific other texts?
0: Yeah. And you can think of really obvious ones like. Paul in Athens in Acts 17, um, right. you know, quoting uh, Euripides and uh, I forgot who the other guy he quotes. Um, but he even even says, as your own poets have said, right? In him, we live and move. I, w- the church I became a Christian in, they actually had a song, In Him We Live and Move and Have Our Being, a really That's upbeat, uh, charismatic song. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't I was in seminary and I was like, oh wait, the in him there is Zeus, not the God of Israel. Like the, the original author of that line was talking about Zeus. Um, so yeah, I think in that in that kind of a case, it's obvious, like Paul is very overt in what he's doing with his rhetorically. Like he is, he is saying, look, you I mean he begins that speech with this God you proclaim in ignorance or this God of ignorance or agonosis. I want to proclaim to you now who this God is and he, and he like celebrates them being religious. Like, I see you're very religious. You're 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 getting there, but let me tell you these things that you're missing that are really important. And then he gives this really absurd, beautiful speech, um, in which he says, "And you kind of already agree with parts of this." Let me quote these people that you revere and and you know how deeply they revere these people or not. But like this is floating around, and you're thinking already. So that's one way where you just say you know, he's just trying to engage people with what is culturally familiar to them. So most people will point out when Paul, Paul usually goes first to the synagogue and second to the Gentile. When he goes to the synagogue, he doesn't do any of that. He quotes the Torah and he quotes the prophets and he's, he's reasoning from within their own literary tradition. Right. Um, In the New Testament, you could also say it is striking. Uh, So you get these little references in Revelation or Jude, like micro-references to Hellenistic Jewish texts. So the Apocrypha would be one collection of Hellenistic Jewish texts, but obviously there are dozens and dozens of others that don't make it into the Apoc- what, what the church is called the Apocrypha. There are dozens and dozens of them that don't even make them into the most inclusive version, like the Ethiopian Orthodox um, version of the Bible. But um, it is remarkable that when you get to the New Testament, the New Testament authors are swimming in Hellenistic Jewish literature, all this stuff that's been written in the last basically two centuries before Jesus, and they are alluding to and quoting almost none of it. They are almost entirely and regularly and repetitiously they're they're quoting it. Everybody points to the quotes, like you know um, the things that are obvious, low hanging fruit. They're they're literalistically repeating what is from Isaiah or from Deuteronomy or from Leviticus, love your neighbors yourself, do not hate your brother in your heart, um, just the really easy things. What I'm more interested in how is how they use things like Deuteronomy 29 and Isaiah six is the, having eyes do you not see, having ears do you not hear, is your heart hardened, using that language as kind of a, a way of thinking. So Mark famously or infamously uses that language to describe people and to think through the problem of why the disciples don't understand, but it's all like, Subterranean. It's not on the. It's not overt in Mark. It's it's very like wink, wink, nod, nod. You know what I'm talking about. Deuteronomy 29, Isaiah 6. Get your house in order. You want to be the Deuteron- Deuteronomy 29 one, not the Isaiah 6 one, right? Um, it's very subversive use of the literary traditions that they're used to, in order to reason with them about um, the kingdom of God, it's the nature of the kingdom of God, and where they should be within it. Um, so if you were to talk about like volume amplitude of how much they're engaging literature, it's almost all like 99% Torah and prophets and Psalms and a lot of Psalms and these glancing blows at this other, this other literary tradition, which would have been the prominent literary tradition of their day. I don't know what to do with that striking difference. Like I, I, the example I give is it would be like asking someone to give you the history of music. And they start with like cavemen banging rocks and they make it all the way up to Baroque music in the 18th century and skip straight to Taylor Swift. And they're like, and that's the history of music. And you're like, wait, I I feel like you missed two or 300 really important years of, of music creation. They're like, nah, don't worry about it. That's not important. Right. I mean, it's a striking absence. um, And you're saying
1: the part they skipped is.
0: Hellenistic Judaism the Apocrypha, right. the, Pseudepi- the Old Testament Pseudopigrapha, Pseudepigrapha, all of these texts you know, um, that were generated by various groups for various reasons after the Greeks come in. And you can see a lot of it either reacting to the Greeks or imbibing, taking the Greek thought and kind of weaving it into Hebraic thought from the Torah um, or rejecting the Greeks entirely or their hero na- narratives where the heroes always kill the Greeks. Um, right. And uh, so- that's a simple, a gross simplification, but it it's not it's not overboard. It, it's I think it's capturing adequately what's what's going on in their day. So why are they so silent on all that literature of their day? And and go it, they are the original reformers. They go back ad fontus, They go back to what they consider to be their classical literature, which is the Hebrew Bible and only the Hebrew Bible. Um, so that's that's a form of quotation that. That, or sorry, that's a form of reason that goes beyond quotation. That's actually like weaving your tapestry with the threads of Torah, with the threads of the song, with the threads of uh, where um, with Enoch, even these little things that show up and they're very minor and they're very sparse. Right. So there's just a few of them across the New Testament. They're more like what Paul is doing. Like, you know, you know. This prophet has said, or you you've heard it called this thing over here that right. you know, this man went to the seventh heaven. I don't even know if he really did or not, and body or soul or whatever. It's very tentative, it's very glancy. Um,
1: so it sounds like what you're saying is, you know, to really understand what's going on in the New Testament specifically, um, the thought worlds we want to be entering and engaging with is the thought world of the old testament. It's not, you know, the um, the intertestamental literature or the Hellenistic, you know, Jewish literature of um, the few hundred years preceding, but it's really that the main sources they're engaging in the New Testament are the Old Testament texts.
0: Yeah. If you want to understand what's going on literarily in the New Testament, I think that's your primary source book because that was their primary source book. That said, I wished every Christian knew the Hellenistic Jewish text, that what, what, Even just the Apocrypha, right that that small collection of Hellenistic Jewish texts, there's obviously many, many more texts outside of those. But even if you understood those texts, then I could very quickly walk you through what's different about those texts and why the New Testament authors might have neglected those texts in their own thinking, why those texts had influence in the New Testament, but not any kind of ultimate influence in the way that the Torah, the prophets, and the Psalms did. Um
1: right. so how about the Old Testament authors then um because i mean they're not quoting back to an older older testament so when they are Oh but game they game are. Game, all right go ahead let's hear <laughs> the
0: truth. I mean you know we, we just have to remember I, I was just talking to somebody at this classical christian school conference I said, why are you teaching Latin, right? You got Christian students, you're teaching them ancient languages. Why not just hook them straight up with the biblical languages, with Hebrew and then Greek? And people were very, way more receptive to this than I thought they would be. You know, they're like, actually, that makes a lot of sense. Logistically, how can we do this? Good. But one one guy said something that I thought was very telling is... Um, he said, well, you know, one reason for Latin is we have all of these like centuries and centuries of Latin texts they can read. So they can learn to read Latin and they can read all of these texts over these different centuries, you know, but if you learn Hebrew, you just have one book you can read, you know? I said, well, actually, if you learn Hebrew, you can read the Torah. And, and then there are 34 other independent pieces of literature that span centuries of writing um, from the Iron Age all the way up into the Hellenistic period. So if you want a wide span of, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 centuries of literature through different ages and different conquests and different, uh, different historical circumstances and different types of writing, right? So different genres, um, you can see the language as it's evolved over those uh, periods. Believe it or not, you get more out of the Hebrew, you get more in the Hebrew Bible than you do in the entire Greco-Roman tradition, right? If you want time span and different types of literature um or at least as much as so and as i was saying it i could see it on his face uh like like oh yeah i had not thought about that at all right um because again they're collapsing it down into it's just the old testament that's a book um so again go back to isaiah 6 there's uh isaiah 6 is um copying i don't know picking up the rhetoric of deuteronomy 29 um the having eyes, or sorry, ha, having a heart to know. Why didn't you see these things in Deuteronomy twenty nine? It's basically like you walked through Egypt, you saw the plagues, everything. You saw everything that God did before your eyes. Why didn't you understand it, right? And it's and the answer is because God didn't give you a heart to know, eyes to see, ears to hear. The only other place in the Hebrew Bible where that trifecta shows up is in Isaiah six. There are different. There are some places where eyes and ears show up in, in those same kinds of, uh, there's echoes of it later, but the only place where all three show up together is Isaiah 6, where Isaiah is engaging Deuteronomy's logic to talk about the punishment that God is going to bring upon Israel that is inevitable. And then, of course, Isaiah looks towards the end of the book, towards the new heavens, and new earth, the bringing in of the nations. So, I mean, that's one example we can name hundreds of examples where later biblical authors are pl- are employing uh, earlier biblical literature in order to make the same points uh, even in Deuteronomy you know when you get to the curses of Deuteronomy 28, the previous chapter it's all in language of Eden right um, your womb is going to be fruitful, your kneading bowl is going to be fruitful your fields are going to be fruitful. if you listen to the voice of God and and do his instructions, uh, then everything will be fruitful. Uh, and if not, everything will be cursed, right? Um, and so it's actually using this rarely used language of fruitfulness and uh, the language of of the garden in order to display what Israel would be if they listened to the voice of God. And of course, lis- even that phrase, listen to the voice of somebody, comes straight out of Genesis 3. That's a, that's a right. phrase that initially appears in Genesis 3. So you see this constantly in the Hebrew Bible of this Echoing and hyperlinking, you know, back to these uh, previous texts. And it's not always pure quotation. In fact, it's usually not pure quotation. It's usually picking up the language and the concepts of those earlier texts and employing them in the more recent texts. So, right. Wait. So, yeah, so now we've gotten so far afield from background information, historical background information, right? We're really talking about how the text use other texts and employ their ideas.
1: So maybe we can pause for a moment, both because I noticed you have a sock monkey head behind you and I got really distracted, but also to go back to sort of, yeah, our original um question which is you know as someone that's trying to faithfully interpret scripture what kind of information do we need to start with what kind of information do we need um and i think that links to another question which is um i think a lot of times we talk about interpreting scripture as if it's really or it should be really clear really Mm. easy you know and whether that's because we think if you've gotten these near east ancient Near Eastern clues, you've got the key, or whether it's just you know so obvious and everyone should see it through my same biblical lens, and of course, you know every every different denomination and branch of Christianity is saying that, and we're all disagreeing. Right. So you know, is there is there a key to interpreting scripture? Is it even meant to be clear and easy, or is that you know is looking for one key? Um, or one answer, or even just one interpretation all of the time. Is that a wrong
0: approach to begin with? Well, looking for one right in- interpretation is unchristian. Let's forget about whether it's right or wrong. Like the Christian tradition explicitly teaches against it, and the scripture teaches against it. And just pay very ca- careful attention to the move I'm getting ready to make so we don't get in a fight, Amy, you and me.
1: Uh, I'm ready to punch you through
0: the screen. We believe as Christians, according to our canon, that there was one real Jesus. He was one person who actually lived and did all of these things that are recorded in the canon and that they were for the, according to the teaching that he gave. Um, And yet we hold to a four gospel tradition. Uh, And the four gospels are not identical in their details. Uh, They can't be reconciled, you know, um, uh, who is a, an ancient? What it's now called Iraq or uh, Kurdistan? Um, he was an ancient um, Christian. Tried to reconcile them all together and couldn't quite. Pull, or he realized the difficulty of trying to get all the four gospels to say the same thing. Or the, and so the church very early on wrestled with this issue. Okay, we have four different gospels who talk about the same truth, and we believe the four different gospels are mutually enriching perspectives on the same truth, the same story. Um. And so I think anybody who then wants to say there is one correct interpretation, I'm going to say, well, no. According to our canon, there are four correct interpretations of Jesus's life. Um, there's the Exodus telling of Sinai. There's the Deuteronomic retelling of Sinai. Mark's Gospel, when it uses Deuter when it uses Sinai language, it doesn't use the Exodus version. It uses the Deuteronomic version of Sinai in order to paint the transfiguration as a new Sinai, as it were. Right. So. Um, and obviously we have Chronicles in, that retells the story of, of Samuels and, and Kings as well. So we, as part of our canon, we believe there are multiple, this is not anything goes plurality, but there are multiple true interpretations that mutually enrich our understanding of, of, of the truth, whatever, that, if we want to talk about the truth, we can talk about knowing things truly the way that we're supposed to. So coming into a text hot like that and just saying like, look, it must be this way. I think anybody, uh, you know, there's a lot of trauma study right now in biblical studies, Uh, people who've been traumatized reading the biblical text. And uh, we talked about this in our last, uh, in a podcast previously with Jill Firth, who works on Jeremiah and trauma. And people who've suffered trauma, gone through PTSD, they tend to see things in Jeremiah that maybe if you've, haven't had those experiences, you wouldn't notice these things. And so, um, as some people have said, the, the biblical texts are largely written by oppressed people to oppressed people. And so, uh, we kind of have to believe at some point that varying life experiences give us varying inroads to the same truth in the text. And, um, And I I don't think most people actually believe there is one true interpretation. I think most people realize that different people are going to see different things in the text, and that doesn't mean anything goes, right? So, as one book that I use in my biblical interpretation classes, he says, you know, uh, the duck rabbit image. That depending on which way you famous face it, it's a duck or you know a rabbit. So, like, look, it's either a duck or a rabbit, but it's not a spider, right? So. We can talk about better and worse interpretations and what makes the better interpretations better, which ones make it worse. And sometimes historical background or cultural or linguistic information is going to feature strongly in those better and worse. So if I can be controversial and suggest that um, telling people they should be a Proverbs 31 woman as if Proverbs 31 is a checklist that a woman is supposed to like live out is problematic when you do know the Hebrew, because as soon as you look at the Hebrew, you'll immediately realize it's an acrostic poem. It's an A, B, C, D, E, F, G poem, where every line begins with the next letter of the alphabet. And uh, which already tells you something about the nature of what's being told you in in that poetry. Um, And then I think if you read it in context of the book of Proverbs, you should be able to fairly easily figure out this is not a checklist. This is this is a list of ideal uh, ideal qualities of an Israelite, male or female. Um, right. In the same way that lady wisdom is in the ideal view of wisdom, whether you're male or female, right? Um, right. So I mean, that's, I'm willing yeah, to ahead. be a
1: Proverbs 31 woman if yeah. I get the servants that the <laughs> Proverbs 31 woman has. That's all I'm
0: saying. I, you do have to keep your hand to the distaff day and night, you know, the oil oh, never goes out in your lamp. I'll just remind you of that. Right. Okay, like yeah, that's, there's, that's right. there are features of Proverbs 31 that you would just say are, are dysfunctional if, if it were describing an actual woman. Right. Right. Um, right. And, or it's almost celebrating workaholism and, and um, what's that called? Obsession, uh, obsessive behavior. So um. So there are, but that's a literary feature um, that, again, it's why we always have, wherever we have Christians, we always have people who can read the original languages, right? Because there are certain stutter steps. But even with Proverbs 31, I don't think you need it in Hebrew in order to understand that it's not a checklist. I think if you wrestled with it day and night, like the the happy man does with the Torah in Psalm 1, uh, if you wrestle with Proverbs and Seeing why that would have been put towards the end of Proverbs in the position it is, I think most people would come to the conclusion like maybe even, I don't know what's going on here. I just know these are good attributes of a human uh, uh, and not just a woman. At some point, you'd figure out, well, that's not just a woman. So even there, um, I have to point out to my class the point where it becomes an absurd description of a person is it says she goes out and builds, buys, and plants and builds a, a vineyard. Well, a single human being can't do that. That's like saying, I'm going to, I'm going to build a barn and raise it myself. Like uh, you can't do that. It takes the whole community to come out and raise the barn, you know, as the right. Amish do it. So there is a little bit of, if, if you knew a little bit about the historic, the, or just horticulture in the middle, Middle East and specifically in Israel, you would know instantly this is a physically impossible description. Um, it's, a, or an absurd description or an extreme description. Um, so, obviously, that's helpful. But, again, I don't think you needed to know that in order to f- think more carefully about that poem.
1: Right. So, okay. But to go back to this idea, then, that there can be multiple interpretations of a single passage. Here we go. So I'm think- I'm th- sorry?
0: No, I said, here we go. All so here
1: right. we go. Let's well, go, I'm Amy. thinking, like, in the Middle Ages, wasn't there sort of this fourfold interpretive method where you look at the literal meaning, but you also... Right look at the allegory and you also look at sort of the moral lesson coming from it and then what it's telling us about eschatology or the future or whatever and i think i mean you know some of that stuff seems pretty freaky to your modern evangelical reader right and so i'm even just thinking of um some of the parables you know And just the different ways we can interpret something like that. So on the one hand, you know, you've got the story of the prodigal son and someone will come and tell you, well, in the ancient Near East, a father will never run. And so the fact that, you know, he shamed himself to, you know, and and that's, you know, that's sort of the, we want, we need the biblical background to really understand this. And then on the flip side, you have someone like maybe, you know, St. Augustine or whatever that will take a passage like that, and just allegorize everything, and um, you know, I don't know if he does yeah. it for this one, but I know in the um, the Good Samaritan one, doesn't everything, like the donkey and the coins and the oil and the whatever, and this, you know, stand for yeah. something else, and it all probably points to Jesus. So, you know, that stuff kind of freaks us out as evangelicals. So, what would you say? Like, is there merit for this whole variety of? interpretation and what does that mean for a pastor trying to preach on
0: these things? Well, I was going to say let's do are we going to do real talk right now or are we just going to make it so. sound good? Well, okay. let's do real talk. So I think I think pastors are are the problem here or or they can be the problem here. And I sp- say this as a former pastor who did all of the things I'm getting ready to denounce right now. <laughs> here we go. Um or I should say my former behaviors I now see as uh, possibly problematic. And that is why, you know, why would somebody, why would somebody ever even want to think about whether a grown man would run in the ancient world, right? Um, If you're talking about the prodigal son, right? Like that nobody would shame them because they're wearing loincloths and they didn't do these things. And it's the Middle East where nobody runs because it's hot and everybody's trying to conserve calories and like, (laughs) fine, fine. I mean, I I wonder if the real story behind the story here is um, the the reason somebody got into that mode of thinking or, or looking this up or somebody speculated about it, or I, I don't even know how they know this about men running or not, um, is because it'll preach, right? That's a, I mean, that's a common phrase amongst pastors. Oh, that'll preach. You know, like you hear something, you're like, ooh, that, that's a good one, right? Mm-hmm. That'll get them. So I do think there's a lot of times... I'll be careful with my words here. Um that pastors are reading commentaries or they're reading articles about their passages that they're working on which hey, look, on a good day if a pastor has enough time and is like trying to put in the effort, kudos. I'm I'm glad that's happening. But um Again, there's that kind of, I wanna clean up and I need need to make this this exciting or I need to give people a tidbit they can walk out with. And I don't think anybody ever thinks that, it's just how it happens. The pressure, I mean, look, if you're an Instagram star or you're a YouTuber, you know about the pressure to produce content. Like you have this great idea, you wanna, or if you're a podcaster, um, (laughs) you wanna produce stuff and then all of a sudden it's dictating what you do. Like you're looking for more content, you're trying to do things you know different ways. And I think pastors can have the same problem where they're just looking for new ways to produce the same old content or to to make it interesting or in our most sinful moments to put us at the center of like, oh, the pastor taught me, you know, my pastor knows all of these things. They know all these secrets behind the text that I don't know. And I think right. what that can do, and I have an article coming out with a bit of mine where I where I argue that this this happens. I I've done it myself is what you're secretly trying to do is become a priest over the biblical text where you're the only one who could administer the biblical text appropriately because you're the only one who knows the linguistic secrets and the historical cultural background secrets. Um, right. And I think if you look at, you know, who are these men from Galilee that are speaking in our own, you know, dialects and languages, the, the, the bent of, of the biblical text is this is for everybody. You, Deuteronomy actually says you should be able to teach this to your children. Um, that you should be able to impress it upon them as they rise and lie down and and walk along the way. Um, And it's for the farmer as well as it is for uh, the scribe or the king. And so I think there's some way in which I want to maintain that you can get all of this out of the text. You can get everything you need to out of the text. Background information illuminates and it puts up guardrails. So I think there will always be a need for as many people as who, who can to know biblical Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek, to know the, the the surrounding languages and stories and literature so you can compare like what's unique here that the Bible's doing and what's not. I mean, this is one of the great things about the Torah is there's been all this study in the last decade or two showing how unique the Hebrew Bible is in the ancient Near East. There was For a long time, it was like, ah, it looks just like the Enuma Elish. It looks just like these the Code of Hammurabi. It looks just like this. And now people are going in and really carefully showing like how how strategically it's showing to be different on all of these fronts. Um, so you need to know those things in order to make those distinctions. But at the end of the day, for you and me who need to know God and that we're his children, uh, I think we can and, and need to be able to extend the thinking of the, of the prophets that he sent to us, we need to be able to extend their thinking into our circumstances today. I think we can do that with the literature we've been given. Right. And I will step <laughs> off my soapbox there.
1: <laughs> well done. Well done.
0: We didn't even get to Lazarus and, you know, the bosom of the old uh, Abraham. So.
1: It's never too late.
0: (laughs) I think we should call it quits. Thanks for your time and, and guidance, Amy.
1: Well, thank you. It's been fun.
0: You've been listening to the Biblical Mind Podcast, exploring the deep structures of Christian scripture. For more, visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org. Subscribe to this podcast at all the usual places so you never miss an episode.